Amen. Well, if you don't feel good about yourself now after being told you're awful, uh, <laughs> we've got an awful group of people here. Appreciate that, Pope. That we are. You know you felt it. You felt the love. Hey, we're glad you're here. I went to my first Broncos game yesterday. They lost to the Browns. Yep. Not going again. When your team loses to the Browns, it is time to pack it up. I would appreciate your uh, prayers. Uh, today, the Bears are playing the Packers. Listen, Bonnie Lou. Okay? I've been patient, pastorally patient with you enough. It's, it is running thin, all right? I'm going to dock your tithe. Hey, we're glad you're here worshiping with us. Uh, since 1884, the Oxford Dictionary uh, has grabbed the word of the year. Have you guys, do you guys follow this? Any other nerds follow that? The word of the year? There's two of us. Awesome. So this year's word is, is super joyful. It's toxic. Uh, and so that's the word of the year, uh, toxic. In 2017, the word of the year was youthquake. Anybody ever heard of youthquake? Except for those of us who read the dictionary. Youthquake is essentially a, a political or social uh, rallying point led by young people to make an advancement of some kind of cause. Uh, so that was the word in 2017. In 2013, the, the po most popular word was selfie. Uh, and it, it seems crazy that we're so far away from selfie being a brand new word, but that was the most popular. And we've all taken selfies in this room. Raise your hand if you've never taken a selfie. Bill, okay, we'll take care of that. Cheryl, we'll take care of that. Now, some of you have taken selfies, but you still need to be educated because if, if you do not do the right angle, you look silly or you add 50 pounds to yourself. And I'm sure some of you kids have went, don't do it from below, go above, right? Uh, some of you have done that and it looks awful. Uh, experts will tell us that selfies, the biggest reason for a selfie is to show where we are, right? I took a selfie with Marcus Laws, uh, who's not here and we both got home at the same time, so we'll get on him. Uh, we took a selfie at the Broncos game before the misery started, and uh, it showed that we were at the stadium. But guess what else happens when we take a selfie? Who's in the center of it? Yeah, not me, you. You are in the center of your selfie always. It's always you. It's you smiling. It's you doing fish lips. It's you winking. It's, and, and usually it's like 20 or 30 pictures before you get the right one that you want to show to everybody. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to continue our series by talking about me. Not me, Brian, but me as in us, you, I, me, the individual, me as being self-centered. And here's the interesting thing that we're going to try to unpack this morning is that the more that we're focused on me and my happiness and my agenda and the things that I want to do, actually the less joy-filled I am. 
It just happens that way. You don't even need to believe in God to know that. Because the more that we just focus on ourselves, the less joy that we have. Why? Because we weren't wired that way. We weren't wired just to think about me, 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 me. We're in this third week of how to kill your joy. The first week we looked at discontentment. Something that, man, every Christmas season, people feel discontent about something. Kids feel discontent about what gifts they received or didn't receive. You feel discontent about your marriage or your family or, or the size of your house or the condition of your finances. There's just discontentment in our hearts and we don't like it and it robs us. It, it's a thief of joy. Last week, Alex did an incredible job unpacking busyness, something that every single one of us in this room struggle or have struggled with at some point in our time. Can you get me a little piece of tape for this thing? And so this, this morning, we're looking at self-centeredness. And here's the reality. And I want to make a blanket statement in here. We do this pretty often. There's not a single person in this room that is not self-centered. There's not a single person online listening that isn't self-centered. Now, you might have it under control. You might know how to handle it, and you're not as much as the next person. But every single one of us have thoughts or feelings about being self-centered, self-centered. Focused. And so I want you to turn with me to Philipp, the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seats underneath you. There's also uh, Wi-Fi that is, is pretty crummy here, but you can try and, and grab that uh, as far as your Bible app. Uh, so I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit around here, but remember from week 1, 16 times Paul uses the word joy or rejoiced. He uses it all throughout this very short little letter, often referred to as an epistle, to this, this little letter to this church of Philippi. He's writing from prison. It's a crummy place to be. It's wet. It's dark. It's cold. He's been beaten and stripped, laying there naked, and he's writing this letter talking about his joy. It seems foreign. It should seem foreign to us. Because if anybody had a reason not to be joyful, if someone had a reason to be in a bad mood or to be self-centered, it was Paul. And he's writing this letter. And the question is how? How could he do this? How could he write such a letter and be filled with joy when his circumstances are so crummy? And Paul will go on to tell us that it it really has to do with what we think about. It has to do with, with what occupies our thoughts and our emotions. In fact, there's a, there's a verb in the original Greek, phreneo, which means to think or to consider or to set your mind to. And Paul uses this verb in this short little letter 10 different times, the, the most frequented verb than anywhere else in the scriptures for this word to be used. Paul wants it to make, uh, make himself abundantly clear that if we are going to find joy, he talks about this at the beginning, make my joy complete, then we have to think about what we're thinking about. 
And so he goes on to just describe this. And so how do we do it? How do we turn from being self-centered to others-centered? Number one is to think others first. Think others first. Now, even though a lot, the, really the vast majority of Paul's letter here in Philippians is writing to this group of people who he loves dearly. He's writing to friends. He's writing to dear uh, partners in ministry. He's talking about how he loves them. He's talking about their partnership. He's encouraged by them. However, he does address a minor issue so that it doesn't become something bigger because the reality is some people weren't getting along with each other. Go figure. Paul writes about unity and communion, community and oneness and a team. And he writes this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm one in the spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This emphasis on oneness because evidently some people weren't playing nice on the playground. They weren't talking kindly to one another. There was bickering and arguing. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why would he say this? Why would Paul put do everything without grumbling or arguing in his letter? Probably the same reason that Sandy and I, on a weekly basis, say things like, get off his head, stop punching him, don't lick him there. Why? Because we see it happening with our three boys. And so we say it, we address it. Why does Paul put in here, do everything without grumbling or arguing? Newsflash, he's seen grumbling and arguing. And he's going to address it. He addresses other things. Chapter 2, verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. People looking out for their own interests. Chapter 3, verse 4. If someone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Obviously, there was quite a bit of boasting going on in the church of Philippi. People bragging, trying to puff themselves up that they know better, that they've experienced better, that they've accomplished more. And Paul says, really, if you want to compare things, I have more reasons than even you do. And then chapter 4, verse 2, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche. If, uh, I know Katie and Chase are pregnant. If you guys are looking for some names, Yodia and Syntyche, you guys can use those. <laughs> to be the mind, same mind in the Lord. Essentially, hey church, listen, these two women are not getting along. Can y'all intervene and help them figure this out? Sometimes we want to think of the church as just this beautiful, grand, glorious, holy place where everybody's just getting along. They're selling all their possessions. The Spirit of the Lord is upon them, and everybody's just singing hymns. 
Well, what we see is there's grumbling, there's arguing, there's people looking out for their own interests, they're putting confidence in the flesh, and these two women are having a cat fight. It's not going well. And so Paul wants to address some of this self-centeredness throughout the place called Philippi. Many of you know who General George S. Patton is. Bonnie Lou grew up with him. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I told you, no more Packer talk. All right. So I'm not listening to you. So General Patton spoke very colorfully about individual thinking. He didn't hold back. If, if you read any of General Patton's writings, he's pretty darn colorful. And he's kind of a man's man. Patton was educated at West Point. He began his military career leading cavalry troops against the Mexican forces and became the first officer assigned to the new, brand new U.S. Army Tank Division during World War I. He promoted through the ranks over the next several decades, and he reached the high point of his career during World War II when he led the U.S. 7th Army in its invasion of Sicily, and it swept across northern France at the head of the Third Army in the summer of 1944. Late that same year, Patton's forces played a key role in defeating the German counterattack in the Battle of the Bulge after capturing 10,000 miles of territory and liberating the country from the Nazi regime. Patton was pulled aside one time by a reporter and was asked about individual thinking within the ranks. This is how George Patton responded. An army is a team. It lives, sleeps, fights as a team. This individuality stuff is a bunch of emoji faces. Just use your mind. Patton understood that being self-centered wasn't just going to kill your joy, it was going to kill people. That the idea of being an individual in an army, the idea of being an individual on, on the war would put lives at risk. That there was no place for it. And he used as much, uh, the most colorful language that he could possibly describe that individuality thinking had no place in his world and what the U.S. was trying to accomplish. So I want to look just a bit closer. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Bible scholars will tell us there are four very, very important phrases within this passage. And in each of those phrases, get this, some of you English majors will understand this, there's only two nouns and no verbs whatsoever in the original language. And so if you read the Greek for how it was written, it would be unbelievably choppy. In fact, when English, when, when linguistic 
uh, experts translated this into the English, they had to add a few verbs to smooth it out. Otherwise, this is how it would have read. If any encouragement, Christ. If any comfort, love. If any tenderness, compassion. We read that in the English and it seems a little choppy and yet Paul said, I don't need to add anything to this. If you want encouragement, Christ. Not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend, not more money, not prestige, not the... Uh, the job you're going to get or a better house. You want encouragement? Christ. If you want to be comforted? Love. If any tenderness, show compassion. Paul says, if you want to build community in Christ and make that joy complete, I'll describe to you how you do it. There's a simple recipe. Encourage, Christ, love, compassion. That's the recipe. You can almost picture Paul in prison going, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm going to put a little bit of this and a little bit here. And and if you stand and look at it, you'll eventually see that's the community that creates joy. Something that is obviously missing in our world today. I don't know how many of you love 3D images. Any of you love 3D images, also referred to as stereograms? Do any of you know what I'm talking about? You know, you look at a picture and all of a sudden, like, Pee Wee Herman jumps out or a dinosaur or, you know, a cup of coffee. You, you look at these things, uh, hidden images that if you stare at them long enough, eventually you begin to see it. You kind of got to let your eyes relax a little bit, kind of look cross-eyed, uh, you know, maybe shake your head a little bit and then look at the image. And all of a sudden you begin to see some of these things. Oh, I love those. And so we're going to look at a few of these. I want to see if you can find the image. Once you see it, say, whoa. If you're listening online, they're staring at a, uh, a, a blob. <laughs> Keep looking. Anyone? Okay, let's try the next one. Cody, are you seeing anything up there? You got nothing, huh? What'd you get? An eagle? Don't say blue. Cheaters? White. All right, let's go to the next one. Did you say unicorn? There's not a unicorn up there. You see stars? Yeah. Well, look beyond that. Everyone can see stars. You see a starfish? Anyone else back there? You're like, I got nothing. Here's what we're going to do. These slides are going to be on our app and on the web with the sermon. 
And here's your task. I want you to pull these up, and I want you to allow your eyes to drift a little bit. I want you to see these images. In the first one, you will see an ice cream cone being licked by a human being. Let's go back to that first one. Whenever. Okay, we, there's an ice cream being licked. All right, in the second one, go to the second one, there's a bird. Yeah, we can call it an eagle. In the third one is a starfish jumping out in the middle. Some of you, if you're, if you're brand new, you're like, what the heck kind of a church have I found myself in? Here's what's interesting about these. I want you to go home and, and take a look at these on your computer. Paul has literally used in the scriptures to paint a picture that looks like just a bunch of blobs that in, in initially, at first glance, you can't see it. You read it and you move on. And yet, with stereograms, experts will, stay, will say, the longer you stare at it, and allow your eyes to relax, you begin to see what's really there. And here's what we do, and this goes back to Alex's message. We are so busy that we look at Scripture and we go, just a bunch of rules and regulations, just a bunch of things that are from thousands of years ago, like who the heck cares? And yet the longer we look at the imagery of the Scriptures, we begin to see what God's intentions were all along, and that is to give you joy, to give you life, to give you wholeness to mend and heal relationships, to cause your eyes to look to the majesty of God, to find community and joy. And slowly but surely, after a while, that which was cloudy, it starts to become more clear. I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having that same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He says, be like-minded, share the same love, be in one spirit, one mind. Paul is inspiring us to think others first. You want to find joy in your life? Think others first. Because there's a big difference between self-centered and other-centered. That's number one. Number two, think others' interests. Think about the interests of other people. This is super hard in our culture. Our culture, more than any other time, has said, think about your own interests. What do you like to do? What do you want to do with your own free time? What do you want to do with your money? Like, what do you like having to uh, take part in in a, in a given weekend? 
And yet the Bible says, think about others' interests. In today's times, we have the, the Salvation Army uh, bell ringers, right? It's the Christmas season. Often you'll, you'll see them out there, at least with a Santa hat. Sometimes a full-on Santa can be a little creepy to kids walking up. But nevertheless, they're ringing a bell. And they're collecting funds for those who are in great need. It's something that has happened for a long, long, long time. This was all started quite a while ago. And the staff of the Salvation Army would often gather once a year for a Christmas party of sorts or, or, or the, all the volunteers of the Salvation Army. They would gather and General William Booth, their founder, would give a rousing speech to fire up the troops, to fire up the volunteers. We can do this. We can raise a lot of money to help these kids and adults in need. Well, in 1910, General William Booth was way too weak to go to the party, to go to the gathering of his staff. And so he wrote out his speech that he would normally give to the volunteers, and he folded it up and put it in an envelope, and he sent it with a courier uh, to the staff gathering. And, and as the staff gathered hundreds of volunteers in this ballroom, the moderator gathered everyone together to read General William Booth's Christmas speech to them on his behalf. And he opened up the letter and he read the one word speech. In 1910, he wrote others, period. No other speech, no other words. He channeled his inner Paul of, I don't need to write a bunch of words because it's really not that hard. Others. And if Paul were to give us a word for the next two verses, verses three and four, it would be others. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. These two phrases are extremely rare in the original language of the scriptures, but were very, very common in ancient Greece. In fact, the Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote a book on politics in which he exposes the selfish ambition of the many, many people who run for political office. He describes these human beings as the ones who are out for their own win, their own gain, their own agendas, their own interest, and not thinking about anyone else. Good thing our politics have changed. Selfish ambition will keep us from thinking about the interests of other people whether it's at the hierarchy of a business or within your own family and friends and neighborhood, and it will in turn kill our joy when we just think about me. Because here's the reality. If I go throughout my day thinking about me and, and what's a win for me and what's a good day for me and how do I accomplish my things, I'm not concerned. More than that, I'm not even aware of the needs and the concerns and the hurts and the pains of others. And that's an awful feeling. When you spend a quite a bit of time with someone 
And at the end of that time, you find out they're in great need and great pain. And you were so focused on you that you didn't even know it. It's a really lonely place to be. And Paul actually gives an antidote against selfish ambition or vain conceit. He, he literally says in, in verse 3 and 4, this one word, humility. Now, here's where things get interesting. Contrary to what I've shared in the past about certain words used in this letter, humility is very, very common in Scripture. But contrary to that, it was very seldomly used in the culture, the secular culture and literature. And every time in ancient Greco-Roman times that that word is used, humility, it's used with disdain. <coughs> we talk about it now as something that's good. Humbleness, have humility, think about others first. But in those times, it was disdain. In fact, in Roman culture, humility was always associated in literature with humiliation. For people like slaves and those who were walked over and treated like a doormat. And so when Paul uses this word, when Paul describes to put others first, to have a humble heart, to think about the interests of others, he is literally swimming against the grain. And he is shifting what culture deems to be something bad and distasteful and shameful and embarrassing. And he says, oh my gosh, that is what you were made for. And today we struggle with it. It didn't end in biblical times. That's what the culture described, but not the Bible. I want you to look at how the Bible describes humbleness and those who think about others first and put themselves down farther. Psalm chapter 18, verse 27, you save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that if you want to find yourself on the opposite line of scrimmage of God, then be proud. Harbor pride. Think high of yourself. Humility was confused by ancient culture much like it is today <clears throat> let me tell you what humility is not humility is not self-deprecation 
We went through a whole season of this in our, in our world history of people beating themselves and starving themselves and locking themselves in cages and to self-deprecate, to think lowly of themselves. That's not humility. In fact, I would suggest to you self-deprecation, ongoing self-deprecation is a sin because it diminishes the work that the Bible describes that God is doing in you. You see, humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, look at yourself and just like beat yourself up. Look at yourself and think about how you are not worthy. I received an email uh, last week from uh, a woman who lives uh, up near Nederland off, um, off Canyon and Sugarloaf Road up there. And don't, don't know her at all. And sent me an email this last week and said, I feel like God is stirring my heart um, to the things of God, but I don't quite understand it. Are you free for coffee? And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. So we got together this week at Starbucks uh, in Boulder. And she sat down and she just began to share how she doesn't feel good enough, worthy enough because of present and past mistakes, guilt that is 400 pounds sitting on her shoulders. And we sat there and we teared together, we laughed together, we talked about God together and family together, and I was able to speak truth to her. That when God convicts the heart for humility, it's not a guilt. It's to make you better. And I began to try to pull off some of the weight that she just was holding on to herself that was keeping her from allowing God to really speak very clearly to her. And friends, I want to say if, if you're here today and you think humility is thinking about all the things you do wrong, all the ways that your marriage could be better, ways that you could be a better parent or a better friend or run your finances better or run your business better or mistakes you made in the past or mistakes you made this morning. Can I just tell you, God is in the, God of just, in, in the business of just lifting those weights and allowing his cross to carry those for you. To have a heart of humility is not to think low of yourself. It's to think of yourself less and to think about God more. These interests of others don't necessarily come natural. It, it has to be exercised and, and grown into a habit. And so we, we think about others and we think about others' interests. And the last one here is we think about serving opportunities. Here in our passage, Paul shifts from exhortation to illustration. He has been pounding in this passage over and over and over, and he shows them then. He uses Jesus, not a bad example. Says in verses 5 and 8, In your relationships with, with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, nothing like raising the bar, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, being, and be humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. These are amazing verses. If you want to get your heart ready for Christmas, take these verses and read them over and over and over and over. The ancient church, the first century church, used some of these verses to create hymns that they would sing over and over and over just based on these truths. Jesus, although he was fully God, was willing to become one of us so that he could serve us in the most lowly, most painful, most sacrificial way possible when he gave his life for us on the cross. Our sins deserve the death penalty. And because of his life and death and resurrection, he is able to offer life to those who submit to his authority, submit to his majesty, and then choose to follow him. The servant who became the lowliest of the low offers the greatest gift that humanity has ever known. Jesus was not self-centered as he walked the earth. He wasn't thinking me, I, me. He wasn't thinking about his own interests and he wasn't looking to be served. And he would have been fully justified in that. He was God. But he didn't. His thoughts were on a condemned humanity. His thoughts were on his disciples who often didn't have a clue. His thoughts were on the people in the crowd that were hungry because they hadn't eaten. His thoughts were on a woman who no one would talk to. His thoughts were on the wedding party who was about to be embarrassed and shamed because they ran out of wine. His thoughts were on his best friend who had died. His thoughts were on grace and forgiveness and sacrifice. He was thinking about the mission. And he had joy. And so we too are told to think that same way. Have the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. You can't do for others what Christ did for them. You can't take away their guilt. You can't take away their shame. You can't take away their sin. You can't make their life better. You can't go to school for them. But you can have the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus during this Christmas season. And, and as you do so, you can preserve your joy. So here is how, in part, you protect your joy from being killed this Christmas season and combat against the thief called self-centeredness. Think others first. Everywhere you go, not just at home, that doesn't mean you think others first so you go home and buy more gifts. That's not thinking others first. That's being unwise with your money. Think others first. That's on the road. 
that's with an obnoxious Cleveland Browns fan. That's at work. Think others first, others first, others first. Think others' interests first. What do they like? What are they interested in? What's on their heart? And think serving opportunities. And, and don't allow your mind to go, oh, well, here's the pitch. Here's the Christmas pitch. I got to go sign up for something. No. How do you serve another? Shovel their driveway if it ever snows. Go visit them in a hospital. Like the Pope said, take someone out for coffee here. Say, I don't know you. I'd love to get to know you. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I watch your kids for you so you guys can have a couple of hours together? Sandy and I are very willing recipients for you to serve. I'm just kidding. But think serving. And when we do that, your joy won't be robbed. The joy that God gives you. And that when it's complete is only found in Christ. Let's pray together. So Lord, uh, it just doesn't seem like it gets any easier. We talk about being discouraged and discontentment. We talk about busyness. Now we talk about self-centeredness. It's just a super joyful Christmas around here. And yet when we address the things that rob us of our joy, then when we know our enemy, we can combat it. And so our prayer this morning is that as we take steps to becoming more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that you would change our perspective, change our outlook, change our agendas, our schedules, our finances, how we spend our time, what goes through our minds. As the Bible says, renew our minds so that we can not only be joyful, but to walk closer with you. And in the end, thank you. Thank you that you love us for who we are. Thank you that you are patient and kind. You're compassionate and loving as a father. That you never turn your back on us. That you never say time's up. That you never walk away and say, I've tried, I'm done. That your arms are always open wide. And that your grace is more than enough for us.